We are in the, the most wonderful time of the year. Playoff baseball, meaningful college football games, there's sports on TV whenever you want to watch it, and it all matters. And so maybe you're like me, and uh, you are finding yourself uh, squeezing in some time to sit on your couch and watch some football or baseball. Both of our teams are doing well, the, the Astros, and I'm a Braves fan. And so we all, have, uh, we all have aspirations for a World Series, and maybe we'll be so fortunate to play each other. That would be kind of cool. But regardless, as you watch those teams play on TV, you get to see the crowds. And there's no doubt about who those crowds are pulling for when the game is underway. They've got their orange jerseys or T-shirts, um, they know the whoops and yells for the Aggie fans. You know, the, everybody knows who they are pulling for. Everybody knows who they're supporting, who they are rooting on. No misconceptions about who they're pulling for. Now, I, I was thinking about it yesterday. Y'all know I'm a Bama fan. I wear a belt sometimes that has the Alabama A. Now, I'm going to wear my jersey tonight to our team day chili cook-off. The Atlanta Braves, Freddie Freeman, number five, MV free okay I'm a, I'm a huge fan no misconceptions but here's the deal lots of people have misconceptions about God's feeling for them people have misconceptions about how God feels about them and maybe it's their their past experiences with church people or the things they've been through or where they are in life and the burden of guilt or shame they're carrying they just they struggle to believe what we believe that God loves them, that he has a wonderful plan for their life. You know, it's, it's not like he's wearing a jersey that has their name on it. To them, it feels like God is distant and nowhere to be found. And I think that's a, a terrible thing for a person to suffer from, to be under a misconception about how God feels towards them. I wish there was a cheer that we could cheer. One, two, three, four, God is on your side, or something like that. I don't We'd have to come up with a better one. But something we could do to make them realize just how God feels about them. And then you open up a passage like the one we just got to read. And God's heart for sinners is made completely clear. Um, just like a t-shirt or cheerleaders on the sideline, Jesus reveals God's heart for sinners. And this morning, I, I want y'all, God's people to take a good hard look at how God feels towards sinners, how he reveals his heart for sinners in the way Jesus interacted with people. And I want you to see how it should be the heart we have for them too. See, up to this point in Mark's gospel, we have seen who Jesus is as the Messiah, the Son of God, the King come to establish his kingdom. We've seen his authority expressed over all things in his teaching in his authority to cast out demons, in his authority to heal people who were sick. And last week we saw his authority to forgive sins. But today we're going to continue pressing into chapter 2, which is a chapter totally devoted to growing controversy. We're going to see how this king, this Messiah, doesn't just come to establish a kingdom, but he invites all kinds of people to enter into it. You know, last week we saw the healing of the paralytic. 
where four faithful friends lowered their friend down into the presence of Jesus, and he, and he healed him. And I told you last week, my sermon in the sentence last week, was that Jesus forgives anyone who trusts him and sets them free to live for him. And I think the passage we just read together, verses 13 through 17, is like putting that to the test. Jesus will save anyone who trusts him? Anybody? Anybody can get in on it? And I think, yeah, anybody. Because as we're going to work through this passage, we're going to see how Jesus reveals God's heart for sinners. And the first thing we're going to see is that he sees them. He sees them. Uh, Mark continues the story of Jesus' actions and his healings and his miracles. And he's, he's back and forth, you'll remember, from Capernaum to the countryside. The crowds are pressing in, trying to get all up in Jesus' face, trying to get him to heal them, cast their demons out, touch their sick people, you know, all these things. And so Jesus has to retreat. He has to go to the countryside where he can refocus his mind on his mission. And he again finds himself by the Sea of Galilee. And Mark tells us that all the people came and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, in his tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now, there's nothing really theologically significant about the word Jesus saw him. Uh, it's literally just the word for sight. So he just, he saw him. He just happened to glance and there's Levi sitting in the tax booth. But I think there's more to it than that. You see, Levi was a tax collector. And tax collectors were despised people in the ancient world. The Roman system of taxation existed like this. Because Rome was a centralized power far away from Palestine, they farmed out the collection of taxes to local people. And so they would auction off the right to collect and levy taxes to the highest bidder. And so that's what would have happened here in Palestine. It would have been determined how much taxes Rome expected to get from this place. The highest bidder agreed that they would turn in that amount of money at the end of the year, but they were given permission to charge more if they could, to charge whatever they wanted. Whatever people would be willing to pay, they could charge. As long as Rome got their designated quota at the end of the year, the rest could be put into their pockets. Because of that, taxation was open to all kinds of terrible, uh, you know, it still is, injustice and, you know, unfair on all the rest. And so they were despised. And, and you think taxes today are bad, and you get your property tax bill, and you're like, seriously? You know, but get this, the Jewish historian Josephus said that there was one tax collector named Joseph who beheaded 20 leading citizens of Ashkelon and Scythopolis when they refused to pay their taxes, and then he confiscated their possessions. So tax collecting in the ancient world was way worse than it is today, and tax collectors were hated far more than you hate the IRS, all right? That's just the way it was. So when you start to look at tax collecting in the New Testament, you start to see that, yeah, Jesus saw Levi in the tax booth, but maybe there's more to it than that. And the New Testament tells us that tax collectors were considered to be sinners on the level of extortioners, harlots, and adulteresses, and they were to be treated as Gentiles, those who were outside of the faith. In fact, the rabbis said that any Jew who became a tax collector had to be excommunicated from the synagogue 
and they lost all the privileges that normally came to them as a Jewish man. They weren't permitted to serve as a judge or even a witness in court, and they were to be shunned and shamed, so, so much so that it, it extended to their entire family. So they're, they're on the outside of society. They are outcasts. And Levi was one of these men. I mean, he probably worked in a tax booth stationed on the main highway that went from the Sea of Galilee through Capernaum, and his job was to collect tolls on all the goods that traveled along the road. One commentator said that it's likely that he knew Simon and Andrew, James and John, because he had charged them the toll that they had to pay for the fish they had hauled in from the sea. We don't know that for sure. But regardless... Levi is just the kind of guy that Jesus' people would have been in the habit of avoiding, shunning, and spitting at whenever they got a chance. They're turning their eye away from him, trying to ignore the fact that he was there. But not Jesus. Mark says Jesus saw him. He looked at him. I wonder, his eyes met. Their, Their eyes met. You know, Levi's ashamed for who he is and for what he's done and Nobody ever lets him forget what a lousy person he is, what a terrible sinner. But when Jesus looked into his eyes, their eyes met, and Jesus said, follow me. And I love this about Jesus. Jesus is in the habit of seeing people and responding differently than everybody else. Um, Where most people are simply satisfied with categorizing, well, he's a tax collector, or she's an adulteress. Jesus looks beyond that, and he doesn't condemn you think about the woman at the well in John 4. I know some of y'all ladies got to talk about this on Wednesday night. And we know all the background from all the sermons and lessons we've heard. But lady at the well in the middle of the day, probably there because she's on the outside of her village. Probably known to her village as being a woman with a, a sordid past. Living with a man who's not her husband. You know, all the rest. Where everybody's willing to just write her off, Jesus sits down and has probably one of the most theologically rich conversations he has with anybody in the early sections of John. He opens up the truth about who he is as the Christ, and he tells her a time's coming is even here now when true worshipers will worship God in spirit and in truth. He even promises to give her a well of living water that will spring up from within, the Holy Spirit. And Jesus saw her differently than everybody else. Turn over a few pages in John to John chapter 8, and you get the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. Now Jesus bursts into the scene, and there's a a mob of Jewish men ready to exact the justice that the law requires. And he stoops down into the dirt and scribbles some stuff and then stands up and says, let him who has, the first, uh, let him who has no sin cast the first stone. And they drop their stones and walk away. And he looks at the woman and he said, hey, where are your accusers? And she says, they're, they're gone. He says, well, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He saw her differently. And all the other Jewish men saw her. They saw her as defined by her sin and and all that. And they were ready to exact the judgment that the law required. But Jesus saw her and he saw Levi as more than the sum total of all their worst mistakes. There were more than that. They were more than the guilt and the shame of their past sins. They were more than their current circumstances dictated to the world. Oh, he's just a tax collector. He saw him differently. That's Jesus' heart for sinners. Willing to see them differently than anybody else in the entire world sees them. And for me, I wonder, how do I see people? 
Do I see people like Jesus sees people? And you think about it. We live in, we are constantly told, a polarized country where we're glad to talk about those other people. And we're, we're used to avoiding them. I hear more and more people are getting off Facebook because it's just, it's too crazy on there. You know, y- y'all, can I get an amen? amen? Amen, you'll amen to that. It's crazy on Facebook. Let me just kind of withdraw on it. When I see those people, they get under my skin. They bother me so bad. They're different than me. I don't agree with them. They annoy me. They anger me. We see people as, as problems to overcome rather than people to be loved. But that's what Jesus saw. Didn't see him as the sum total of their past mistakes. Didn't see him in their present mess. He saw them as people created by God and worthy of all the dignity he could muster. He was about ready to die for them. That's how Jesus saw people. That's not it. That's not all. That's not the only thing we see about God's heart for sinners and Jesus. We also see that he befriends them. Doesn't just see them. He goes beyond it. And as soon as he says to Levi, follow me, Levi leaves his tax booth and goes with him. And apparently Jesus starts to follow him. And he follows him right into his house where Levi throws a party. I don't know if you saw that. He says in verse 15, It happened that he was reclining at the table in his house. And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Uh, Most meals in the first century Jewish context happened in chairs. They sat But the Roman practice, especially for fancy meals, was to lean on one's elbow against a pillow and eat from a short table. That was the dinner party that they threw. And that's what Jesus does. He's reclining at the table with Levi and his friends. Uh, You know, Jesus went beyond just calling Levi to follow him. He saw him as, as more than a project, but he actually became friends with him. The ancient world, this act of eating together was one of the strongest ties of fellowship and one of the closest bonds a person could have. It even has the, like, quote, technical term, table fellowship. Jesus sat down with them. He entered into their world. He became friends with the tax collectors and sinners, the other people out there. Now, I think Jesus knew what your mother taught you. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, bad company corrupts good morals. He knew that. He taught his disciples, you're to be in the world, but you're not to be of the world. But when you start to look at Jesus' practice, his life also illustrates a willingness to rub shoulders with the kind of people normal religious folk avoided. Both things are true. Bad company corrupts good morals, be in the world but not of the world. And yet here's Jesus hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. And this wasn't a one-off thing. This became a pattern for Jesus. Such a a common feature of his life that he could even uh, accuse the Pharisees of uh, wanting to have it both ways. He said, y'all saw John the Baptist, who, remember from a few weeks ago, wore a shirt of camel hair and ate honey and wild locusts. So y'all saw John the Baptist, and you said, he's a crazy person, he's got a demon. And then you see me, the son of man, come eating and drinking, and you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That was a rumor being spread about Jesus. He's a drunk. 
Everywhere he goes, he's hanging out with the riffraff, the outcasts, the tax collectors, and sinners. Now, why would the Lord Jesus be willing to risk his reputation as the Messiah and Son of God to hang out with those kind of people? That's because he loved them. He saw God at work in them. His eyes met Levi's, and he saw a soul, and not just a problem. He saw a, a living, breathing human being created by God for more than Levi could even imagine, and he was willing to do whatever it took to get into his world and get close enough to him where it wasn't just Jesus talking at him. But you know, like they say, they don't care what you know until they know that you care. And Jesus wanted him to know, hey, I care about you. I love you. You're not a project to me. I'm not standing here on the corner with my bullhorn yelling in your face. I'm entering into your world. I want you to know the peace and love of God for you. He befriended him. And you got to wonder, do we befriend sinners like that? How, cl how close do you get to those kind of people? Now, I was reading this commentary, David Garland and he told a story about a young seminary student who worked part-time as the pastor of a mission church. So it's a new church. Some mother church is starting for a particular area they're trying to reach. And it wasn't like the gated community. It wasn't anything like that. It was the trailer park down the street. This young seminary student lived there and ministered there and ran a kid's backyard Bible club program there and, and eventually had 30 or 40 kids coming. And occasionally the mother church would have a big event, like a Noah's Ark carnival or something great like that. And he would load up all those kids and bring them in for the big event. And David Garland said that about as soon as he did that, the sponsoring church met him with a jaundiced eye and a quick plan to make sure that the kids were kept away from the children of regular members. Now, I don't know if that's a true story or not. You know, preachers, we make stuff up all the time. <laughs> but... Kind of sounds familiar. You know, I think I might have known that church once before. No, I'm kidding. But church people aren't guilty of that, are we? Of, of thinking in terms of us and them. Of practicing what you might call drive-by evangelism. Where you do the knock on the door one time, but hey, you know, you want me to be friends with those people? Uh, no, they need Jesus. Get them here, and then we'll talk. But I'm not going to go where they are. But that wasn't Jesus' practice. Jesus was so close to sinners, he got associated with them. People started thinking he was one of them, even. He's a drunkard and a glutton. But he befriended them. That's his heart for sinners. But then he went beyond that. Because, of course, he loved them where they were, but he loved them too much to leave them where they were. And so he pursued them and forgave them. See, and that's where the real conflict comes to play. That Jesus' friendliness with the sinners and tax collectors could be accounted for and perhaps overlooked. Except that the scribes of the Pharisees had a deep issue with his methodology. And we saw the scribes the first time last week. They are the professional interpreters of God's word. They're like the pastors. They're the ones who talk about commentators and they quote their names and stuff like that. That's who the scribes were. But this is our first introduction to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are, are well known to us if you've been around the church. But as a reader of Mark, this is the first time you come across them. Um, they are the strictest branch of Judaism in the first century. 
I mean, of all the various ones, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Zealots, the Essenes, all the different groups and parties of Jews, the Pharisees were, in their own mind, the ones who took their faith the most seriously. They're the, they're the consistent, they're the biblical Jews, right? And they believed that if they wanted to experience all the blessings of God's future messianic kingdom, then their number one task was to make sure that God's people were living right. And so they had sort of taken it upon themselves to be the enforcers for God's law in Israel. So they prioritized a strict and literal interpretation of the law. And because they knew how easy it was to stray into disobedience, they also constructed what they called fences, extra rules, what Jesus often calls the traditions of men, to make sure that nobody got too close to actually breaking the real law. So they had all these extra ones set up as a buffer to that. But for the Pharisees, there were three commandments that held particular weight. The first was the law of circumcision. The second was the obedience to God's command to honor the Sabbath and to keep it holy. And the third was a strict observance of dietary restrictions, of only eating the clean food that God had identified in the Old Testament, and of making sure they ate it with the right people and in the right way. We're going to see that in a few weeks, talk about washing your hands before you eat. A certain ritual you have to go through, not just to make sure that the food was clean, but that you were clean when you ate. And that was the issue that Jesus ran afoul of, that they saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, and they heard him talking about the coming kingdom of God, and the two didn't come together for them. They thought, surely, Jesus is one of us, he understands, he's talking about the coming kingdom of God, and yeah, yeah, we're good with that. But then why is he willing to go against what God said he requires in his law? Why would he be willing to sit and eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why would he risk his ritual purity? Why would he willingly enter into the brokenness of these people if he's waiting for the kingdom of God? And so they come to the disciples. They say, why is your teacher eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors? What's, what, what gives? And I got to think that the disciples are just as confused as they are. They're thinking, we don't know what this guy's doing. He said to follow him, and so here we are, but we hate this guy, Levi. We're just like you. We're confused. We don't understand it. And in that way, those Pharisees who thought in their zeal for obedience to the law that they were hastening the day when the Messiah would come found themselves at odds with the Messiah himself. They thought they knew better than God about what God desired, but here they are categorizing these sinners and tax collectors and shunning them and avoiding them at all costs. And here's Jesus pursuing them and forgiving them. Because they understood what he was up to. They knew this wasn't just the kind-hearted willingness to receive the hospitality of a tax collector. They knew Jesus meant something by his actions. They knew that by sitting down at the table and befriending the tax collectors and sinners that he was implying that those kind of people had a place in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus overheard it. You know, he hears them talking, I don't know, outside. Maybe they're raising their voices. What's he think he's doing? And he comes out and says, probably one of the most beautiful things we've seen so far, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. 
I did not come to call righteous, but sinners. Here, here it is. I told you a few weeks ago that Jesus is on mission. He has clarity about what God has called him to do. And here it breaks through again. I came. I came not to call the righteous, but to call the sinners. I mean, his pursuit of sinners was the whole purpose of his coming. In fact, why don't you turn over to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. We, we get this growing sense from Jesus that his sense of mission is going to put him at odds with almost everybody else on the face of the earth. He's the only person who knows what God's really up to. And so he's going to be obedient and faithful to what God's called him to do, no matter what. And in Luke 15, he starts to explain why. What, what motivates him? Where does this come from, this desire to pursue sinners? And, and so listen to this beautiful parable. He said, all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, doesn't leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. For I found my sheep which was lost. And I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. What motivates Jesus' pursuit of tax collectors and sinners and adulteresses who are caught in the act and about to get what they deserve? What motivates him? They said all of heaven. Now think about that. All of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. One measly little old sinner, like a Levi or a woman at the well. All of heaven gets crazy. It's like Texas A&M kicked a world-beating last-minute field goal. You know, it's like they're going to rush the field in heaven because that man just repented of his sins and turned to Christ. That girl just turned her back on a life of sin and trusted in Jesus. Heaven, re heaven rejoices over that. Religious people, you know, they may, but is it, was it for real? Or was it just a show? I don't know. Heaven rejoices, though, and I want to be on heaven's side. I want to rejoice. Look at Luke 19. Verse 1. Jericho and was passing through and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus he was a chief tax collector and he was rich and so you should insert and much hated and Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and he was unable because of the crowd for he was small in stature so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him for he was about to pass through that way and when Jesus came to the place he looked up and said to him Zacchaeus Hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. 
And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I'll give to the poor. If I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So what, what motivates Jesus' pursuit of sinners at the risk of his own reputation? Why? Well, he's perfectly revealing the heart of God for sinners. He's showing us in flesh and bones how God has always felt into his broken and disordered world. He's always desired that people would come to repentance. But in Jesus, he took on flesh to pursue them for it. Now, if we dig deeper, I want to be fair to Pharisees. I happen to think if I had been alive then, I might have been one. And so I want to be fair to them just like I want people to be fair to me. And so I got to think in the back of the Pharisees' mind, there's a part of them that wants to believe that even tax collectors and sinners are capable of repentance and genuine reformation. Like maybe it is possible for somebody as bad as a Levi to turn over a new leaf and to get on the right path again. And the Pharisees would have had a perfect plan. I don't know how many steps it would have been, but it would have been pretty detailed on what a guy would have to do to get back into right relationship with God and the covenant community. What kind of restitution they would have to make. What kind of sacrifices they would have to go through. What kind of acts of public contrition would qualify a tax collector of being accepted again into the family of God and into the church-going community. I think the issue then becomes not the fact that Jesus is willing to promise forgiveness to anybody who repents, but with what that repentance looks like. Jesus apparently is willing to freely and instantaneously extend forgiveness to the worst of the worst. Not a bunch of hoops to jump through, not a bunch of walls to climb over to really prove that they mean what they're saying. Jesus just freely gave forgiveness to anybody who would follow him. Robert Stein says, Jesus' eating with such people was a visual declaration of the forgiveness that he had promised back in chapter 2, verse 5, when he said, so that you'll know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Sons, your sins forgiven you. He did that for Levi. He just willingly and freely extended the promise of forgiveness and proved it by sitting down at his table and welcoming him in. Of course, soon Levi's behavior followed that initial act of contrition. I mean, he, I don't think he ever goes back to his tax booth. Life is different for Levi after he finds forgiveness in Jesus. But it didn't start with Levi's decision to change his life. Forgiveness came to Levi when he chose to follow Jesus. That's it. And that's, I think, where biblical Christianity is distinguished from all other forms of religion. You know, you, you think about all the world's major religions. Buddhism. My wife taught me this week that Buddhism teaches that self-denial is the path to enlightenment. That's what they're learning in homeschool this week. Did you know that? That's crazy. Self-denial is the path to enlightenment. You want to be enlightened? Deny yourself. 
the Greek and Roman Stoics believed the same thing. To control one's emotions was the path to a prosperous life. Hinduism teaches good works and faithfulness to the gods and whatever else to find this nirvana and to be reincarnated into a, a higher caste. Think about Islam, which has a regimented pathway to paradise. You think even about the religion that affects most Americans, what sociologists call moralistic therapeutic deism, which tells us basically that most people are good at their core, and if you just give them the ability to pursue their own interests, they'll make good decisions and life will be great. Work hard, and it'll pay off. That good things should happen to good people. But biblical Christianity turns all that on its head says that true salvation and forgiveness doesn't come by what we do, but by what God has done for us. That he pursues us. That while we were yet dead in our trespasses and sins, we were made alive in Christ. That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That before any of us had ever even been born, think about that. 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on the cross for anybody who will repent of their sins and trust in him. And those people will find forgiveness. Before any of us had ever done anything wrong, God sent his son to save us. That's the gospel. That tells us that God loves us. And even when we are against him and enemies of him, he is pursuing us because he wants us to receive forgiveness. And I believe that just as Jesus was pursuing people then, he's pursuing people today. A whole world of broken sinners, man, Jesus is after them. He'd be right up against the table with them. Rubbing shoulders with them. You know, they say the shepherd should smell like the sheep. And I think Jesus would. He'd be with them because he wants them to know the forgiveness he came to offer. But since he's not here, how are all those people going to hear about the God who took on flesh to pursue and forgive them? Us. The last thing I want you to see, he uses them for his purpose. He uses them for his purpose. Now, I love this story because it tells us that Jesus isn't just interested in saving people and giving them some kind of hope of heaven, but he totally transforms their life so that the things they thought were important are now meaningless. Levi left his tax booth. You know, he left his job behind to follow Jesus. That's the whole crux of the story. Jesus calls Levi, and Levi willingly leaves and then throws him a party where he invites all of his friends because he wants them to hear about Jesus. And they end up becoming disciples too. That's what, that's what Mark tells us. He said there were many following him. So I, I don't know. I mean, it seems to me that what Jesus is after is not just Levi's salvation, but the transformation of Levi's life so that Jesus would work through Levi to reach his friends. That's why I think the word follow is significant, that Levi followed him. By this point, it's a technical term. It, it describes the way a person aligns their life with Jesus. They become his constant companion so that their life increasingly is patterned after his example and his teaching. That's what Levi became, a person who was following Christ. And that partnership in Jesus' mission that comes to every disciple became Levi's goal. He invited all his friends. And, you know, eventually, apparently became such a huge part of his life that when the gospel writer Matthew tells this story, 
about the man called out of his tax booth to follow Jesus, he doesn't call him Levi. He calls him Matthew. Matthew, the gospel writer, tells this story, and Matthew's the man's name. Apparently, Levi, the tax collector, becomes Matthew, the evangelist, who writes the story of Jesus and sends it around to all the Jewish Christians in Palestine in the first century so they can know the truth about who Jesus is. It, it came to dominate who he was. Happened with the leper. Jesus instantly cleansed the leper, and he said, don't tell anybody. But of course, the leper left, speaking the word and proclaiming the gospel to anybody who would hear. The woman at the well in John chapter 4 finds out that he's the Christ, and she runs back into her village and tells the whole town, come see who I've just met. He can't be the Christ, can he? And pretty soon, everybody comes streaming out of the village. Jesus says, the harvest is white, the laborers are few. People show up, and eventually they look at the woman and they say, hey, we came out here because of the story you told, but now we've seen with our own eyes that this is the Christ. That's what happens. Jesus sees people, he befriends them, he pursues them, forgives them, and then he uses them for his purpose. I think my favorite example of this is the Apostle Paul, who you may know was a persecutor of the church. He actually describes himself to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.13 as a persecutor, blasphemer, and insolent opponent. Okay, that's the wonderful three-point sermon. And we could open that up and take one of those each at a time. But he was a bad guy. He was a witness to the first martyr of the Christian faith, Stephen. And he went all around the villages and towns of ancient Middle East, rounding up Christians to throw them in jail. And yet he could say in 1 Timothy 1.15 that it's a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. You know, I think Paul means is that if God can save Paul, if he can save Levi, if he can save Brad Mills, there's literally nobody on the face of the earth that he can't save and transform so that he uses them for his purpose. So, I know there are misconceptions about God's heart for people. You know, I know that. And I meet with people all the time. And, and they may not verbalize it, I don't believe God loves me. But you can tell, you've met people like that. And if he did love me, why did this stuff happen to me? Why would I be in the circumstances I'm in? They feel rejected by God, alienated from him. And if that's you this morning, I hope you have seen God's heart for sinners in Jesus. And I hope you know that it's God's heart for you. That God sees you differently than everybody else. You are more than the sum total of your worst mistakes. You're not what your current circumstances tell you you are. You're not what the people around you would have you believe. God sees you differently. He sees you as a person specially created by him for a purpose. And though you may be broken, you may be trapped, you may feel lost, he sees who you really are, a person worthy of sending his own son to die for you. That's how he sees you. And he wants to befriend you. He doesn't just want you to 
here a bunch of laws and rules. He doesn't want you to see your relationship with him as hoops to jump through or hurdles to climb. He wants you to experience the relationship with him that you were created to have. To know him not only as a father, but to know him as a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The one who will never leave you or forsake you. The one who is willing to enter into your mess and your brokenness in order to bring you out of it. That's his heart for you. His heart for you is that he's pursuing you and he wants to forgive you. He's running after you, chasing you down. Every step of life where you feel like he hasn't been present, he has been. He's been pursuing you. He, he pursued you to the point where he brought you here today. Not by accident, but so that you would hear straight from his word, from his own mouth, his heart for you. You can't outrun him. So this morning, I wonder what's keeping you from surrendering to him and following him and allowing him to transform you from the inside out so that you're not where you are anymore, but you are on mission, living for purpose with him, joining him in what he's doing in the world. His invitation to use the same as it was to Levi, follow me. And I pray that you would. pray that you would follow Jesus today. And church, even as we think about people who might be present with us, who feel like an outcast, feel shunned, I wonder, we've we got to ask ourselves, what's our heart for people like that? Do we share the heart of Jesus for broken people? You know, having been loved like Jesus loved us, having been seen by him when we were in our brokenness and befriended by him and pursued and forgiven by him and transformed to live on purpose, on mission with him, how could we treat other people any differently? How could we be like the Pharisees? Why are you eating and drinking with those people? Well, they need the gospel, but not here. You know, I'm glad to knock on their door, but I'm not talking about being their friend. No, I think if, if there's any hope for broken people, there's got to be hope for self-righteous people like us. And so... My encouragement to us would be to just lay ourselves bare before the Lord. To see ourselves not as Levi in this story, but as the scribes of the Pharisees. I say, what is my, is my heart for people the same as Jesus' heart for people? We need to for, ask Jesus to forgive us of our self-righteousness and to help us love our neighbors enough to see them, befriend them, pursue them, so they could find the forgiveness that Jesus wants to offer them, so they could be transformed to live for his purpose. Y'all pray with me.